What's going on, guys? UFC Fight Night Vegas. Another Vegas Fight Night card. Holm versus Vieira. 7-4 uh, and four overall on the card. Not great. Holm obviously lost in the main event, but we set up the hedge-out opportunity. So I wouldn't say this is my worst effort. A little bit better than the last couple of weeks. So I will take it and happily move on. But, yeah, I mean, I think the unpredictability of MMA is you're dealing with a whole bunch of different factors, right? It used to be a joke. It would be like banana peel pricing. Like, you don't want to pay too high of a price because, you know, the guy could slip on a banana peel and hurt himself. But... Now you see Junior DeSantos pop out his, his shoulder in the Eagle FC main event. You saw Alexander Rakic, you know, bust up his leg in the, the main event against Jan Blokowicz. Like, those are kind of unforeseen circumstances. Rose Namajunas opts just not to go out there and throw any strikes. And then maybe in this Holly Holm main event recently, uh, the judges don't get it right. So you're always going to deal with a whole bunch of different factors. But gambling's gambling. And you, you deal with the same thing in football and baseball and hockey and just like weird intangible. So on one hand, I do feel like a lot of bad luck's gone our way. On the other hand, this wasn't the worst effort. And again, we set out the hedge out opportunity. I took it because the last run of luck hasn't been too good, but let's see how we got there. Sam Hughes versus Elise Reed, first fight on the card. This is a bad, this is a bad pick. It was a bad read on Elise Reed, I guess. Really, the game plan would have been state of the outside note striker. And I think she was able to do that, but Sam Hughes's wrestling, I just undervalued it. If you look at any of her other UFC fights, she just doesn't use her wrestling at all. She opts to stand there and trade. And for the most part, she's getting out grappled by Loma Luka Bume, an undersized high fighter. So I didn't really think her grappling is all that good. Her wrestling is not all that good. Now, yes, in the Estela Nunes fight, her last time out, it had been speculated she could potentially win the fight if she can come forward tire out and use her wrestling but again the thought process there was she hasn't shown us any of the wrestling she did against estella nunez but only once estella nunez got tired so i really did think that elise reed would have a little bit of better success and that maybe sam hughes just didn't have the wrestling but it's clearly an element of her game that she's working on you'd see it in later fights eric anders tried to employ it holly holm tried to employ it both of them were on the losing and a split decisions by the way but you can lean on your opponents but in her case she was using that that cage time very effectively to lean on elise reed and then get her takedowns reed in the first round did an excellent job of trying to get back up to her feet trying to scramble trying to make something happen and did land the better strikes it was a close first round but then here's another part of me having a bad read on it is i thought that she'd be able to fight 15 clearly she can fight 15 in striking exchanges these hard, prolonged, grinding, grappling exchanges is what tires her out. And in the second round, it's a 10-8 round. Sam Hughes absolutely dominates her. Now, the last saving grace for a lot of people is that they got fight goes the distance, which was a terrible price at minus 325. And the people that did take Sam Hughes, they took her by decision. The way that second round ended, you just had a bad feeling about it. Reed's cooked. She's done. I wouldn't say she's quitting, but... She just knows that she can't win these fights in these grappling exchanges. And Sam Hughes knows that that's where she's going to win. So what do you think is going to happen in the third round? Minute in, she's on top of her. Not going to go good. Takes the back mount, flattens her out, punches away. The rest finally seen enough. Fair stoppage. Uh, absolutely dominating performance for Sam Hughes. And she's just one of these tough girls. Like, is there striking world class? No. Is there wrestling world class? No. But, but she's certainly working on it. But I think it's her ability to blend all these things together. Move forward if she needs to. Take a punch if she needs to. <clears throat> grind with it, throw punches, but then ultimately grind you up against the cage and take you down. And with Reed, I mean, you kind of knew that takedown defense was her issue, but I got fooled. I got fooled because when you look at Corey McKenna, shouldn't Corey McKenna have not done the exact same thing that Sam Hughes just did last night? Just march forward, land a couple punches, get a hold of her, press her into the cage, peel her to the ground, use your wrestling. It should have been done. She couldn't do it right? Lost on that one. Now you think, oh, geez, Reed's the one that's been working on her grappling. So you take her and no, 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 same problems are exactly there. 
it was more so a case of Corey McKenna just getting complacent and fighting a bad game plan. So Elise Reed's extremely limited going forward. She would need the proper matchups. And he, Sam Hughes is super serviceable going forward. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think she's going to break into the top five. I think she'd be a fringe top 10 contender at best. But there's a whole lot of matchups you could slaughter in with. Whereas Elise Reed, it has to be a specific opponent that's probably just going to exchange punches with her. So Owen wants to start the night not very good. But again, Elise Reed wasn't super high on the priorities. So it's not the most damaging blow to start things off. Chase Hooper versus Felipe Corrales. Went with Chase Hooper. He ends up being the PRP pick. Want to get a couple underdogs on the card, obviously. And yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a narrative guy. Maybe that's what gets me in trouble sometimes. And sometimes it pays off. And in his case, when you're 22 years old, UFC signs you at 18, gives you a developmental contract, invests money in you. You have a couple bad setbacks. They give you a full year off. He's still only 22 years old. Natural improvements are going to occur. Like he's already a big, tall featherweight. Like once he figures out how to not necessarily physically pull his opponents to the ground, because he's just not all that physical. It's just like once he figures out how to use his leverage, then he's going to be able to just trip guys down, take the back, use his grappling. And his jiu-jitsu is pretty smooth. So the year off was the big thing for me is that I was expecting to see good improvements out of him. Whereas Felipe Corrales is tough. He's a tough son of a bitch. But like what else about his game? What else do you want to talk about? You want to talk about his grappling? Not that good. Want to talk about striking? Not that good. Want to talk about his cardio? Not that good. But he's got heart. He's a scrapper. Like that's what he's got. That's his biggest asset. Sometimes that's just not enough. So, anyways, we took the shot on Hooper again, especially when Elise Reed loses. Then, like as far as the parlays are concerned, Hooper really has no, no, no beneficiary. Um, he's not beneficial to them at this point. But still, it's a good underdog play. We'd hope he comes through. He's nice plus money. And Chase Hooper looked exactly like i thought you know like the improvements were there is he world class no no still just one year off he's still only 22 like let this guy get to 26 27 28 let him get to 30 years old let him get to 30 years old with 25 fights in the ufc 30 fights in the ufc he could be a problem champion no champion contender no no top five not likely top 10 yeah yeah i think chase hooper could eventually work his way into the top 10 again years down the road but you're seeing the development from him and uh, I thought he looked really good against Felipe Corrales. First round, he's able to go out there. You know, uh, Corrales is fresh at this point, but you see him use his size, lean on him, get the fight to the ground. When he's on his back, he's always just fishing up. It, it really, he goes to Omoplata. The Omoplata, he's going to look to hit a, a sweep on you. If he can't hit the sweep, he's going to look for a leg lock. He's transitioning into submission attempts or sweep attempts together, and it just keeps your opponent guessing all the time. Corrales is in defensive mode all the time that once Hooper gets on top, he just floats on him, man. He was so smooth, you know? W one thing I will admit is when he took the back and put the body triangle in in that first round, that should have been it. Most guys body triangle you, you're not going anywhere. You know, Ryan Hall and Aljamain Sterling, like once that's snitched up, you, you, there's nothing really you can do about it. And uh, in this case, like he got it a few times and Kraus would just like roll through. So again, he's still a work in progress, but you saw him maintain top control, go for submission attempts, give up on the submission attempts when you know he didn't have that full bite. And his cardio look good, gets up at the second round. He roars like, yeah, it's like, wow, Chase Hooper's becoming a man right before our eyes. Second round, though, zombie mode Corrales is way more effective. Like, he is backing him up. He's starting to land some shots. He's having more success. And then he ends up on top and does a good job of just defending all the submission attempts, maintaining top position. But against Hooper, the one that's initiating everything. It's Hooper, the one that's trying to scramble. Hooper's trying to submit him. Hooper's trying to hit a switch. He's trying to hit a sweep. He's trying to hit a reversal. He's trying to do whatever he can. So he is the one working, but you do get the feeling that Cross is having a much better round and could potentially be stealing the round. And then Hooper ends up on top with like, I don't know, it's like 30 seconds left. And then uh, 
I don't know. I was, I was, I, I, I scored the round for Hooper. The last 30 seconds, he landed some good shots. He had him tired. He had him flattened out. It was like, this is a really excellent position. It was a good close round where I thought Hooper was working the whole time. And, you know, he went through a little bit of adversity that round. So it was good for him. And then the third round, he comes out just like reinvigorated, not tired at all, looking good, takes him down, puts a beating on him, gets a stoppage. This was like a perfect performance by Chase Hooper standard because what do you expect? You know, you're not expecting a 10 second knockout win from Hooper standing. By the way, his stand up looked a lot better. He outstruck Corrales and spots standing, especially at the end of the first, like good performance out of the kid. And again, 22 years old. So lots to work with there. And I think because he's squirrely looking and he's tall and he's skinny and he looks like the kid that you'd kick sand in his face at the beach and you underestimate him. Like maybe you're going to continue getting some good prices, right? So if you can continue to get some good dog money, on uh, Chase Hooper. Yeah, man, I, I think he's he's capable of going out there with the right opponent, still only 22. Give him these Felipe Corrales. Give him these lower-level guys. Don't rush him in too deep too soon. But, uh, yeah, I think I, I think he could become something. And for Corrales, he's an all-action, entertaining guy. The, the only thing he showed in this fight was, the, was pretty much what we knew about him going in, which is just, like, heart for days. He never quit. The ref had to save him because they kept saying, like, defend yourself, defend yourself. And he'd eat 10 more punches in the face, but he's rolling and he's squirming and he's literally fought to the end. Even in a couple of those submission attempts, you know, thumbs up, like I'm good. Tough work, man. Tough work from Felipe Corrales, all entertaining guy. Definitely keep this guy in the roster. Tons of guys he can have a fight of the night type performance with, um, but he's just like not of the caliber of anything beyond journeyman gatekeeper type, right? Jonathan Martinez versus Vince Morales in the preview show. Didn't love Jonathan Martinez just because he does have a tendency to get hit. And Morales has been coming on pretty decent lately. But at the end of the day, he's just got so much volume. The kick game, which is clearly Vince Morales' kryptonite, was going to be just a a very useful weapon for him all night long. So we end up going with him on the second ticket, right? Don't want to top ticket him just in case he gets caught with something silly again. But enough faith that he'll probably just go out there and out-volume him. But again, this is another like picturesque performance from Jonathan Martinez. Like He put a clinic on. Everything was really on display. He mauled him with the light kicks from range. He beat him short uh, distance with his boxing combinations. He was sticking. He was moving. He was evading. He pretty much did everything right for the first two rounds. The third round, I don't know if maybe his legs a little bit hurt from kicking. He's a little bit from fatigued from just throwing so many significant strikes. But it did look with the last two minutes of the round like he was starting to definitely tire. And Morales, who, again, if you want to talk about another fighter that's bringing a lot of heart to the table, this guy was stood a beating for the first 10 minutes. I- I'm thinking, and I had a little action on Martinez by decision because he's a volume guy, but doesn't really seem to have that like that big, big finishing blow. I'm pretty much ready to rip up the ticket like f- three minutes into the second. Like, he is getting chomped up. His legs beating. He's getting hit to the head. Looks like he's slowing down. But at no point did this guy quit. He just geared through everything. And again, in the last two minutes of the fight, he's the one pressing forward, backing Martinez up, finally landing. All I'm getting at, clear win for Jonathan Martinez. Very clear win for Jonathan Martinez. And an excellent performance. Maybe career best performance. But if you're going to become a contender down the road and you're going to start getting booked into these maybe higher echelon fights at 135 pounds, which is just a premier division for the UFC, in a five-round fight, I can't confidently say that he would have kept up that 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 pace. You know, it just seemed to me like he went out there and threw a lot of flashy stuff and exerted a lot of energy for the first ten minutes, thinking he would just finish Morales. And when Morales proved to be a bit of a junkyard dog, that's when he started to struggle and get backed up again. So I can't take anything away from Martinez because I think he's a legitimate 
top 20 bantamweight right now. And again, this is the best division in the entire sport, not just the UFC. So it's hard to crack in that top 15, top 10. I think he's a ways from getting there. But this is a, a good performance. And once he figures out how to pace himself out a little bit better, and uh, you know, he, he'll be okay. Maybe the only other knock, and again, I'm not trying to shit on his performance at all, but maybe like the only other knock is you need a little bit of stopping power. Like if you're going to hit a guy 120 times and he's going to stand up, then you're going to start getting chewed up by these savvy, durable guys later on. Like, look at Rob Font. Rob Font's perhaps the best striker in the entire division, right? He can defeat anybody in, like, these just, oh, man, his jab's on point. His, his handy works on point. His footwork's on point. Like, everything he knows striking is good. The thing is, he's, he lacks zip. He lacks pop. He hits you three, four times, and it doesn't phase you. So when he fights a Jose Aldo or when he fights a Marlon Vera, he definitely outstrikes them. He always outstrikes them, and he looks clean doing it. But like when they hit him back, that's when he feels it. That's when he topples over. You need to be able to get your opponent's respect, not just hit them well over 100 times. You need to back them off. You need to get them thinking. And for Martinez, landing some great shots, right? But when Morales is mad-dogging you and walking you down the last two minutes of the fight, and you're starting to look a little bit fatigued, it's going to be a problem moving forward because you hit him with all your best shots. And you've hit a lot of guys with all your best shots, and they've all just withstood them. So... You know, as in terms of like championship caliber, I don't know what he's got to do. Does he got to sit on it? Power is more of a gift thing. But anyways, good performance. Talking of power uh, being a gift thing, Euros Medic clearly has it. Like guys from Alaska FC, he's very limited. He's one of these I'm going to bum rush you in the first round and try to make things happen. Like I had no real confidence that Euros Medic was going to go out here and put on a career best performance. And for Omar Morales, again, he's going back up to 155 pounds, trains at Sanford MMA, looked in good shape. Guys in the gym rave about him. You know, he's ready to go. I don't know. I just, I guess, I guess I bought into it. In the first round, I thought Omar Morales won the first round. And then the 10 second clapper goes. And I hate when guys do this, right? Especially if you won the round. If you lost the round, yeah, go for it, right? But he won the first round. The 10 second clapper goes and he just decides to go buck wild and just steps in like he's just going to club on Medich. Medich clips him, you know, kind of drops him down to a knee. He's wobbled. The round ends. In my opinion, it was an Omar Morales round. It did kind of get knocked down at the end of it. So not a great first round, but okay. You know what? Medich is a one-round guy. So he's going to start to fatigue here, and then we're going to take over and just not the case. Medich showed up in shape. He was bouncy. He was flowing. He was, uh, again, using every bit of that octagon and using his reach and using his size and just really playing a long man's game, but just touch, touch, touch. You know, you would see Morales come in, right, wade in, right in, high guard, and you would see this, uh, you'd see Menace just, you know, leg kick, leg kick, straight left hand, leg kick. He's just adding up small strikes, but it's adding up. And Morales would unload, like he'd explode with a big two-three punch combination, most of which would either miss or get blocked, but one of them might graze, and they look like good moments. It's not like I felt like we were out of it at this point. It's that Menace was trying to pull away. His cardio was on point, significantly underestimated that significantly overestimated that Morales was going to be able to fight a hard 15. And he he landed his best punches on Medich. I thought Medich would topple over, and Morales had a little bit of underestimated power. We just hadn't seen it in a while. No, not the case. He blasted Medich with some really nice right hands, and Euros took them the whole time. He's Slavic tough. I should have factored that in, but he just started getting going. And when he started getting going, he broke Morales, puts him down, and becomes the first guy to officially knock him out. So, again, another thing that I didn't really foresee happening is that Morales had been submitted by uh, St. Pierce in his last fight. That was the first time he'd ever been finished. But, I mean, the guy was still cast iron. He still went 15 minutes with Giga Chikots. He got dropped two, three times in that fight. But, I mean, he persevered and showed some heart. But Menace just looked career best and overwhelmed him. So, again, 
I had Morales on my third ticket, and that's a significant blow because I should have switched him with Chidi, had him one down. But that's all could have, should have, would have shit. I had faith in Morales. I thought the minus 145 price tag looked good. And I guess I just expected more out of him, and I expected less out of Euros. Maybe that's the real story. Euros just showed up way better than I've ever seen him. And uh, if he's going to continue to make improvements, he's not in Alaska anymore. He's over in California. He's putting work in. He's starting to accrue experience at a high level. This is the farthest he'd ever fought into a fight. And you look at doing it. That's all good, valuable stuff. So Euros can be fun moving forward. Uh, Jolton Almeida versus Parker Porter. Again, this is another one on the preview show. Ah, Almeida's moving up to 265 taking on a big guy yeah I, I i don't know there's just a lot of red flags on the matchup plays like minus 650 so what can you do with it if you put it on your top ticket there's just no value you're not getting any value out of it like if you put him with your second next favorite on the card your second next best guy on the card you weren't you weren't getting anything out of it plus you were taking a lot of bit of risk it's a guy moving up to heavyweight for the first time and we all expect a lot out of him we all expect this guy could be a world champion at 205 pounds but again heavyweight is a bit of a task so moving to the second ticket, he's on the second ticket with Jonathan Martinez. And uh, I'm, I'm just hoping he gets the job done quick because I don't want to see him get extended into these later rounds and then this just become a sloppy bog. But this dude looked like he could be a contender at a heavyweight too. Like he just ripped right through Parker Porter. He backed him up, got him up against the cage, got double underhooks, shot for like a double leg up against the cage. And at this point, it's like, are you going to lift up a guy that cut down to 265? Might walk around like, 270, 280 pounds. You're just going to, and he's built like a tree stump. He's not a big, tall guy. Parker Porter, there's nothing to him. He's all legs. You're just going to pick this guy up and dump him? Yup. G.I. Joe buddy over here, Almeida, dumps him, takes him down, gets on top of him, and just starts putting a beating on him. And then the beating just never stopped. He continuously just grinded at him, landed good shots, positional awareness. Parker Porter was working to get up. He was attempting to do the best job he could, but in doing so, he just left himself open for the choke. And once that thing locked in, it was like, you know, under the, it wasn't fully under the chin. It looked like it was maybe a bit of a face crank, a jaw crank. But again, have you seen the way this Jolt made is built? Like, my God, he puts those pythons around your neck. Big trouble, big trouble. And that's what it was, first round submission. So as clean as a victory can get, and I don't know if he plans just to go back down to 205, which I think he's a, legitimate problem for anybody the current world champions Glover Texera who's into his 40s and has openly admitted that he's got about two fights left in him the former champion Blockowitz looks like shit he potentially has a neck injury of his own he just lost two rounds to Rakic and got gifted a win when the guy's leg blew out Rakic himself well he just got his leg blown and really didn't look all that good truth be told in that fight Dominic Reyes is way off the map Volkan Uzdemir is way off the map John Jones is gone this division is ripe for the taking and then at the same time Jolta Almeida's skills translate extremely well at heavyweight where basically nobody's really known for their grappling, right? Like all those old-timey great grapplers like the Josh Barnett's and the Frank Mears and the Nogueras, like they're all gone now. And then all the heavyweights now are not really grapplers and they're more so bangers. So he can just go out there and get these blast doubles. If you could pick up a guy that big, you could pick up anybody in the division, right? You go out and take one of these big boys down. Like Brock Lesnar, Shane Carwin, those guys were problems because they were 265 and they were wrestlers. Those guys aren't around anymore, right? You get Derek Lewis's, you get Cyril Gunn's, even the champion Francis Ngannou, been working a lot on his wrestling. In fact, just used it to win a world championship fight. But if you can go take that motherfucker down, good times to be had, right? So Jordan Almeida could be one of these like two division world champs. I don't know, maybe I'm too high up on him. This was a really clean win though. Uh, Joseph Holmes versus Alan Amadovsky. 
Holmes, another guy expecting to see a good version of. He'd fought like four or five times last year, was fighting like every other month. I don't think you saw the best version of him against Jamie Pickett. Looked okay in the first round, but then tired out and largely got controlled against the cage. And then Alan Amandowski, like, I like a good narrative, right? Chase Hooper's going to make a, a lot of improvements in a year off. Alan Amandowski's not, right? It had been like three years off. He's not a good fighter. <clears throat> He's very uh, one-dimensional and basic. Comes forward, lets his hands go. He's got some power. If he clips you, he could win. But this is MMA. Most guys got a modicum of power. And if they come forward and they clip you, they could win. Again, that's anybody could do that part. It's like how effective of that is he? You've seen him do it a little bit in Bellator back in the day against limited opposition. And then the UFC just doesn't seem to have it. And this fight, it was largely the same. He came forward. He came forward for the first little bit. I was thinking, geez, Joseph Holmes needs a stick and move here because they are in the small apex octagon and he was getting backed up to the cage right away. And then when, when he was getting backed up, he stands real tall, right? He's like, whatever he is, six foot four, with like 80 inch reach, big, tall guy. He would stand tall up. I mean, maybe not six, four anyways, big, tall guy. I, I was thinking if you stand with that tall man defense up against back against the cage, no space to move backwards, head up. That's when one of these brawling type guys are just going to swing that overhand they're going to clip you, right? So he needed to move, and he did an okay job of landing some kicks to stick away. But as soon as he put together a little bit of offense of his own, Alamandovsky just he can't take it. He's one of these guys that is probably a decent hammer. He comes forward, he'll throw hands, he'll try to hit you, and then when you hit him back, he didn't respond whatsoever. He got hurt, he got stung, fight ends up on the ground, and then you knew that Holmes was a significantly better uh, grappler. And that's why for the people that were chasing home props, uh, nobody felt comfortable with the knockout or the submission. It's just take it inside the distance. This fight's not going the distance one way or the other. Alan Amdowski is just not likely going to let that happen. I didn't think it was going to happen in the first round, by the way. But uh, I, th I think Holmes just, you know, tagged him up a little bit. Fight hit the ground. That's the adversity. Alan Amdowski doesn't deal well with adversity. Took his back, choked him out. So excellent performance for Holmes because it's his first UFC victory. And then showed off that he can strike. He can grapple. These are things we knew about him. But it's just going to be comfortability, right? It's just how comfortable can he get over the next few fights? That was his 10th career fight, his first win in the UFC, second appearance with the promotion. Like He's just going to continue to get better and better. And I think with James Krause in his corner, they're going to put together excellent game plans and just have this guy fight to the best of his ability. This is an excellent sophomore outing for sure. And then Alan Amandowski, usually when you sign with the UFC, it's a four-fight deal, right? So this would have been the third fight of his deal. And I would say probably they would probably release him. He's been starched in the first round in his last two. His fight with Christoph Jocko wasn't particularly memorable. What do you have to gain? But like the UFC don't mind hanging on to these guys for like one more rodeo against somebody they're trying to get a win over, right? He's he's fun, all action guy. He's going to come forward and chances are you're going to end up with a highlight reel victory at the end of it. So like he's serviceable in that. He would technically have one fight left on his contract. So like there is a chance that you do see him pop up one more time against somebody who's on a downswing, somebody that needs a victory or some debuting Chinese prospect that they're trying to, you know, market in that part of the world. Like it would be something weird like that for sure, but I could see them bringing him back. Jung Young Park versus Eric Anders. So this one was super contentious and like, uh, I just, I don't really have time to tweet out. I will, I will get back to it. So much shit going on right now. in like my personal life got to, got to make sure I stay on top of that stuff first. I like, I'm not like tweeting everything, but I had tweeted out that I thought Park won. And I thought that that was a bounce that finally we deserved because so many bad bounces going against us, right? 
Was it a close fight? Absolutely. But uh, the amount of people that disagreed was just like, huge. Like, oh, fuck. No, nobody, nobody agrees with this opinion that Park won. Interesting. So I go and I check, like, sure, dog. And sure enough, like, all three guys that scored it there all had Anders winning the first two rounds. And it seems like the consensus one that, that Anders had won the first two rounds. And I don't know. Like, I got to disagree with that. So I th- I'm going to rewatch this one again, right? So rewatch it again. And see, the same thing rewatching it as I thought watching it live, right? Eric Anders not doing a terrible job here, right? But it, you can't reward a guy for stalling up against the cage. Nothing, nothing's happening. It's a 50-50 position. Even though you're the one holding him into the cage, it's a 50-50 position. You're not doing anything. You guys are both still standing, right? You're leaning up to him up against the cage. Now, why cage control does become effective is because a lot of the time you chip away with knees to the thigh, right? You chip away with these short little shots. You know, you might you might dig in a, a little elbow if you can. Knee to the body. You press them back up against the cage. You drop for a, a level change. Doesn't work. You, you get the underhook again. You feed him a couple shots. You got to work up against the cage. You can't just hold a guy up against the cage. And that's what Andrews did, man. He was getting outstruck. First round, he's coming forward. He's got this thing where when he comes forward, he just dips his head straight down and steps right into the pocket. Now, he's got heavy, heavy heat. Stan Southpaw got a nice left hand. For the amount of heat the guy's got, like he throws big, it doesn't generally get the knockout reward. So I'm not sure how much he's stinging guys, but he throws so goddamn heavy, you'd best get out of the way. But it looks slow. It looked lethargic. It looked predictable. And when he would dip his head, that's when Jung Young Park landed a couple decent shots. You got Anders, presses him up against the cage. There's not much doing. This round is not really going anywhere. I have it on a slight lean for Jung Young Park because he's landed a few better shots. And then Anders lands a takedown. Now, Anders gets a takedown, and the very first thing Park does is scoot out and get right back up. And then the round pretty much ends. So how do you score that first round? Well, it's a tough first round to score because on one hand, Park outstruck him. On the other hand, Park got held up against the cage and got taken down one time in which he got immediately back up. I don't really score the takedown because you didn't do anything with it. You didn't establish any type of top control. You didn't land any strikes out of it. You just happened to momentarily trip him to the ground and then he got right back up. Not really rewarding in my opinion. Holding him up against the cage, even though it's control time, not very rewarding in my opinion. So so who landed the better shots in that fight or that round and who landed more of them? Well, Jung Young Park did. Okay, fair enough. So let's move on to the second round. Second round, John Young Park's landing. Much better shots. And Eric Anders is eating shots, doing a better job of kind of landing that left hand of his own. He had a few good moments in the round for sure. And then it's a lot of him trying to press John Young Park back into the cage. So it's a very difficult round to score again because control time is going to go towards Anders, but he's not really working. He's stalling out. What he's doing is he knows that range, he might land a shot or two, but then he's eventually going to get hit with three or four shots worse. And a lot of it's also body language. Anders would get jabbed in the face and he'd wince and he'd squint and he'd back away and he'd look to grab a hold of this guy and press him up against the cage some more, right? Whereas Jung Young Park is waving him on and smiling and being like, let's fight, right? So that, that has to be taken into consideration. I don't know how you score the second round, it's close. I don't know how you score the first round, it's close. But this thing's 1-1. It's 1-1, and it's who wants it more in this third round is what it's going to come down to. Now, apparently I'm alone in that opinion because most people seemingly thought Anders is cruising in this fight. I don't understand. For the record, because I had a couple people be like, dude, he didn't just hold him up against the cage. He outstruck him. No, not, not correct. He got outstruck 25-16 to 16 in the first round, okay? So he got hit nine times more, and they were better shots. In the second round, he got outstruck 31 to 16. He did not fucking win those rounds. And he certainly didn't win both of those rounds. So we can agree maybe he won one of them because, yes, he did have some cage control. 
And maybe I'm being harsh that he didn't do nothing with it. He landed a couple shots while he was pressing him up against the cage, but he was stalling. It was a stalling tactic. And if you've watched Eric Anders in prior fights, he is a staller, especially up against the cage. So, so no, no, this is not 2 nothing. Anders going into the third. It's 1-1. Who wants it more in the third round? And in the third round, Anders and his team believe they're up 2 nothing as well because they think it's effectively scoring, holding him up against the cage, and it's not. And he, he evades. He runs away. He, ah, he didn't run away. He planted and he threw some punches. He bit down on his gum shield. Anders has got a tremendous chin and a lot of heart, but he got chewed up in that third round. It's uh, it's a Jung Young Park round. For the record, he got outstruck 49 to 33. So Anders actually landed more punches in the third round. He landed more significant strikes in the third round than he did in the prior two. But that's because there was no cage control in the third. He kept trying to get it, and Punk Park would just circle off and put a beating on him. So he was forced to fight. He was forced to fight. And he threw down. Dude's a warrior. Dude's got one of the best chins I've seen. He took Thiago Santos's shots. He took Khalil Roundtree's shots. The guy can take one hell of a punch. But that doesn't win you a fight. So he took a whole bunch of punches in the third. And uh, the third round's clearly Jung Young Park. So now it's like, you, I, just, I just need two sensible judges to agree with what I'm saying. And the internet disagrees, but the internet's watching it with live commentary. And the commentary team is... All about Anders. Well, not necessarily they're all about Anders as much as they just don't like Park. Oh, he's waiting too long. Oh, he keeps getting off second. He's fucking out striking him. And he's outlanding him. And he's not getting taken down. And the few times he did get taken down, he got right back up. I don't know. I think that's a Park win. So they announced it as a split decision, and I agree with that. And the internet doesn't. And that's totally fine, man, because we're not always going to agree on stuff. And that I think that's the subjective nature of judging is it's kind of like, what are you looking at? What do you prefer? But I also would would love to see a lot of the people that scored for Eric Anders be in the arena, sitting all by themselves, sitting there, and then wonder to myself if they wouldn't think, yeah, dude, Park is landing some decent shots, man. He's stinging him. Ah, yeah, you can see he's stuck. Oh, Anders is holding him up against the cage some more. Oh, Park's free again. Yeah, Park is landing some shots. Yeah, Park is winning these exchanges. He's touching them up more. He's hurting them more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I, I think I would score this fight for Park. But if you watch it at home and the commentary is continuously, I think Anders is winning this fight. Yo, Anders is doing such a good, so strong. He's so just he holds guys up because the cage is so well. Like that influences you. So I'm not mad if anybody scored the fight for Anders. It was a close ass fight. Park was not top ticket worthy. He wasn't. But uh, I I don't personally look at this one like I got a robbery win and I should be grateful for it. I think they got it right. Didn't really matter because they got the whole main event wrong. So can't praise these fucking guys uh, too much. Hoops fans, the latest offer from DraftKings Sportsbook is too good to pass up. New customers can bet just $5 on any team and get $150 in free bets if they win. It's that simple. It's not often you get... 30 to 1 odds on any basketball team to win their next playoff game. That's some great value. DraftKings Sportsbook customers can also bet on the NBA with same game parlays. Combine multiple bets from the same game for a bigger payout. The more legs you add, the more money you can win. Head to the app to check out our picks. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code DOP. Bet just $5 on any pro basketball team and get $150 in free bets if they win. That's promo code DOP at DraftKings Sportsbook. 
Tabitha Ricci versus Pollyanna Vienna. We go with Tabitha Ricci. The thought process pretty straightforward on this one that she just got the better wrestling. She would probably get takedowns. And whereas Paul, Pollyanna Vienna, I discredit her jiu-jitsu a lot. Uh, the the arm bars from guard, all that stuff against low-level opposition. That doesn't do nothing for me. But uh, she looked good in this fight in terms of her hips were engaged. She was throwing up all types of submissions. She was looking for isolated arm. She was looking to do what she could. The, the problem was is that it works against a Mallory Martin. It works against you know somebody who's lower level, and she submitted these lower level opposition opponents. But against a BJJ black belt like Tabitha Ricci, a competition black belt, uh, her being on top of you was just going to turn into a jiu-jitsu match, and you weren't going to submit her in a jiu-jitsu match, so she was likely going to win that. Uh, but one thing I did underestimate was I also thought Ricci could just keep the fight standing and likely have some more success with her stand-up game, but seeing them in there, I didn't really pay much attention to the weigh-ins on this one, but seeing them fight in the cage, Vienna was way bigger. She was way bigger than her. And that's her, the stand-up, it wasn't like it was that much more refined, although you could see clear improvements to her striking game. It wasn't like Vienna was just much better strikers. That she was just bigger and longer, and Ricci was pulling back on a few of her punches because I don't think she wanted to like overly engage. But even when the momentum seemed like it was starting to swing in the stand-up, Ricci was the one that would press forward and then eventually get these takedowns. Once it either clicked in her head or her coaches told her, you just exclusively go to the wrestling and just keep taking her down. She just starts to do that, and she looked clean. She looked good. Now, of course, in her debut, she moves up a weight class, short notice. Mano Fierro, one of the best girls in the division. Tough debut. She gets smoked. Her last performance looks much better. But gassed out after the second round. She had a good first two rounds, five takedown score. Third round, a little bit tired. You know, we were expecting a young green fighter, not a whole lot of pro experience on her on her professional fighting resume. A green fighter like that would make some improvements and get better and maybe shore up that gas tank. And I thought she did, you know, going into the third round, she's still getting these like power takedowns, man. Like uh, where she lacked in technique, she just made up for and just like sheer determination, grit, and just her ability to drive right through. So maybe it's because it was Pollyanna Vienna. She's not exactly known for a takedown defense, but yeah, Ricci just looked much improved. And I think for a lot of the girls in the division, if you're going to give up takedowns to her, you're not likely submitting her off your back, right? You're not likely just going to keep getting up at will. And If you do, she can take you back down and she can do it for 15 minutes. She's a serious problem. Her striking, not terrible, but not good. But the size discrepancy, she's like, what, five foot one? Like that, that's always going to be there. And there's very few girls in the division that are just going to be that small. So maybe keep working on the striking on the defensive aspects and the defensive elements, but don't go in there trying to outstrike your opponent for the majority of the fight. Like the, the game plan should be get those takedowns and just put that jiu-jitsu to good work. Chidi and Jaquani versus Dusko Todorovic. Like Chidi and Jaquani, the one screw up that I had really for myself personally this week is I should have flipped him with Omar Morales. Preview show talked about how Chidi just sees earmarked to catch a, a KO victory because Dusko is very uh, defensively not sound. You know, he's a liability. His head's way up in the air. His body's completely exposed. He fights the kind of um, style that he's always in your face. There's not a whole lot of room right there's not a whole lot of room in between and that becomes a problem and I also mentioned with cheating jaquani that he's a world-class muay thai striker and this is why I like every element to be an excellent mixed martial artist you have to have every element to your game it's not simply oh this guy's a good wrestler he knows brazilian jiu-jitsu and he uh is a good striker well, well what is a good striker and what is a good grappler you have to have judo you have to have sambo you have to have you know different elements to your game mostly jiu-jitsu of course but same thing with striking. Well, what's a good striker? Well, you can box. Well, can you box? Can you kickbox? Can you kickbox? And Muay Thai. Well, what's the benefit to Muay Thai? What well, makes Muay Thai any better than boxing? Boxers would kill a Muay Thai fighter in a boxing match. 
or just just using hands. Muay Thai fighters don't have great boxing. Muay Thai fighters would probably lose to kickboxes in just a straight up, you know, kickboxing match. It's the fucking clinch, right? These guys excel in the clinch. They are physically strong. They're able to maneuver guys around. They'll wear you down. They'll wear your arms out, and they'll just put a beating on you with knees to the body and elbows to the head. And that was one thing with Chidi is that now he's, that he's a BJJ black belt, you, you don't feel so nervous that if he does get taken down, he's just screwed. There was a time where he was just screwed. Now the guy's actually made advancements, so he can probably survive, survive long enough, to get back up and when he is back up you got a problem on your hands because that range he's super long lanky you land that overhand right he's got massive power in his hands and he's just got like dynamite fast kicks so you think shit i'm gonna close the distance oh good luck with that as soon as you hit the clinch with them he's gonna need you to the body he's gonna elbow you in the face it's just a lose-lose situation all over Todorovic actually impressed me early just closing in the pocket as he always did got a hold of cheaty was able to take him down they also said Todorovic was a BJJ black belt. So we got two black belts going at it here. But Chidi just like minus P's and Q's. He did everything nice and smart and relaxed. And that, that was one thing Anders screwed up on is that Anders would get Park. Like he would try to get the takedown. He would almost get the takedown. The few times he did get the takedown, he would just put one hook in and fall over the top, right? Like that one position. He tries to get the hook. He falls over. That's the end of the second thing. Park lands on him. Probably steals around because Anders falls off the top. He would rush everything. Chidi took his time and just created that space that he needed to eventually get back up. Took a couple punches in the face because he needed to in order to create that distance and get back up. And when he got back up, what does Todorovic do? He grabs a hold of him and tries to lean on him as if he's just going to stay in the clinch. And No, don't stay in the clinch with him. Knees to the body, incoming, pow, pow, pow. You could tell he probably shit his pants after the second one. But the kid had an excellent, not a good poker face. You could tell he's in a whole lot of pain, but a whole lot of bravery and a decent colon. Because he stood up, and then Chidi just put the mauling on him after that, right? He was hurt, blood in the water. Chidi's fired up. It's still only the first round. The guy is just all over him. Man, the under one and a half hit at plus 130. That was good. Chidi and Jaquani got the knockout victory. Chidi and Jaquani got the win overall. He was a minus 275 favorite. Very good performance from him. And I think, you know, he is 33, and he's fought just a couple times in the UFC now. And uh, you could say Marc-Andre Barrios, very middling, limited. You could say that Dusko Todorovic, his career is on a downswing, but, you know, middling, limited. But for Chidi, just like the manner that he's beating these guys, is that he kind of shows you the well-roundedness of his game. The first one against Barrios, you stand at distance with this guy, he's got huge power. This one... If you stand close distance with him, you're screwed. Well, what about taking him down? Well, we've seen a guy take him down. He had an excellent get-up game. He had excellent defensive jiu-jitsu, and he got back up. It was a clean win altogether for Chidi. And he factors in well with a lot of these guys in the division because he's, quite frankly, a much better striker than they are. And now that he's not just problematic and getting held up against the cage and getting taken down and getting submitted, all good stuff. Last concern would be cardio. On his contender series fight, for the first time that I've ever seen, his cardio looked awesome. On point, really good, really good. Smashes the guy, finishes him in the third. So that was a good indication his cardio would be better. The Barrio fight was 16 seconds. How, how could you tell if he'd made any real improvements there? This was a one-round mauling, but it was a high pace. Cheaty looked good. So Cheaty, Cheaty, bang, bang, man. T take, a not, take a look at him. He'd probably be underdog money going forward. Shit, give me him and Chris Curtis. <laughs> Just because I'd love that deep down in my heart. 
uh, as a fan, because of course we do love the sport on the fan perspective as well. Michelle Prayer versus Santiago Ponzinibbio. Uh, but this could have been an eight and three week for me. I flipped at the last minute to Santiago Ponzinibbio. And I think it was just kind of rewatching the Chaos Williams fight, kind of rewatching mostly the Nico Price fight, where it's like, if you do come at him, you can take his shots. You can put this pace on him. 100% he, he's going to tire. He just moves so goddamn much all the time. You know, he's very athletic, but he uses that athleticism throughout. One thing I would always see is a uh, guy's like an excellent amateur boxer, right? He's like, uh, he, he, he could be an Olympic gold medalist. And then they transition over the pro ranks. And they're really not all that good, especially early. Sometimes they got to fight 10 cans before they start getting their feet wet. And a lot of these Olympic guys, maybe not gold medalists, but a lot of these guys that box at the Olympics, don't transition properly into the pros. It's a different game. It's a point-based system. But a lot of it is amateur boxers move a lot. There's a limited time to score points. You move your feet. You come after the guy. You throw. Pro boxers don't move a whole lot. They do have little little steps, little edge. They wait. It's like a Floyd Mayweather. He's the best of all time. Doesn't exert any energy. They just sit. They wait. They wait for those spots. I thought, you know what? The way that prayer is just always moving laterally like that, of course, Nico Price did the same thing, almost won that fight. Santiago Ponzinibbio is a consummate professional, a pro of all pros, fights to the death, willing to go out there, always shows up in shape, has that, that dog mentality, and fought an excellent fight. And I, I just kind of thought, you know, volume, forward pressure, eventually breakdown Pereira, and uh, Santiago Ponzinibbio would be live. This is a 50-50 fight going in. The odds makers had it correct. It was literally a 50-50 fight coming out, and then that's a split decision. Same thing. It was a close fight going in, close fight going out. Was it an excellent fight? But I do agree with the decision. I thought Michelle Pereira did one, the did win the first two rounds. The second round, he starts to fatigue a little bit, and he's definitely getting hit a lot more. But I think because Ponzinibbio is having a better round than the first, there's a perception that he's winning the round. Not winning the second. He's just having a better second round and working his way back into it. The way the second round ends, even the commentators say like, huge response from Santiago Ponzinibbio. So they're believing as well that Santiago Ponzinibbio has won the second round. And now it feels like momentum has made this a 1-1 fight going into the third and Pereira is getting tired. But I, I don't know. I thought Pereira did an excellent job in the first two rounds of, again, sticking and moving. His cardio didn't get zapped nearly as quick as I thought it would. And he landed some big shots. I mean, again, Ponzinibbio is another one of these guys with a good poker face. But he got zapped. He got wobbled. He got rocked. Couple stiff jabs busted him up. Nose is broken. That's damage. That's that's all stuff that needs to be factored in. And I thought Prayer did a better job of doing that. But of course, the dog in Ponzinibbio allows him to go out and have an entertaining scrap, as he always does. Split decision, you know. I think that calls to the close nature of the fight, which I totally agree with. I just happen to believe that Prayer was the rightful victor. So second split decision, I'm agreeing with. I think the judges do get it right. Again, close fights, but I think the judging is good tonight. Just not so going into the main event. But this is something uh, I have prepared for. I thought if I can, if I only have one ticket going into the main event, I got to let it ride. If I was on a good streak right now, if I was on something where, you know, even we hit a big ticket in the last couple of weeks or something like that, then yeah, you let it ride. Why not? We only have two tickets in play, plus 274 and plus 114. So is there a ton of money to be made there? No, but we got a top ticket rune last week. We get a top ticket rune the week before. You're, we're getting a lot of, Bad bounces, bad luck, and bad reads. You know, if you're not tailing me, totally fine. If you are tailing me, sorry about that. But just the nature of the game hasn't really been going in our, in our favor. So now that I have this opportunity to take this hedge out, if I let it ride and something was to happen in a women's MMA match with a 40-year-old Holly Holm who hasn't fought in over a year and a half, you know, what, am I just, I'm just going to lose all my money again? Like, you can't do that. It's a 52-week long season. 
the gamble pretty much on the card every single week, right? We had a huge high to start the year. That high is definitely decreasing. Got to be responsible. And responsibly here, had to jump out of it. So I felt like a coward for sure. And then the first round, I scored it for Holly Holm. Nah, man, I should have let this thing ride. The second round, I don't know, Holm kind of looked tired. Like, Vieira just started backing her up and bombing on her, landing some excellent strikes. Like, definitely worked her way back into it. Uh, the first was largely cage control work from Holly. The second round, Holly just was standing at distance with her. And where she's this world-class boxer, you know, New Mexico Boxing Hall of Fame, or I think it's like the Sports Hall of Fame. She's in the actual Boxing Hall of Fame in New York. Uh, well, I guess she's getting inducted. She's like world-class former UFC champion known for her striking. Kelly Vieira has been outstruck in like six of her seven UFC fights. No, not the case. Vieira's striking looked career best. It looked good against Misha Tate. looked even better against Holm. She's backing her up. She's landing on her. And then she almost chokes her out with a rear naked choke. It was like, God damn, this is not going well. So it's 1-1 after the second going into the third. I thought it was a good response round from Holly, like fought much better than the second. But again, Kellen Vieira is just landing the better shot. She's backing her up. She's doing some work. The fourth round, Vieira's maybe tiring a little bit. She's not throwing as much. What would happen is that Hollywood blitz in with a three, four punch combination, maybe glance two or three of them. Most of them getting blocked. A lot of them missing would land something. And Vieira would just club her with one counter shot, one counter shot. And that counter shot pretty much landed every time and landed quite well. So she is landing what I would say are the better strikes, but Holm in that fourth is starting to take over. She's just starting to take over with volume, especially down the stretch. She's landing the side kicks. She's landing the body kicks. I think she greases out the fourth round very close, right? This is 2-2 going into the fifth. And like Holm's just such a world-class operator. Fifth round, her best round. Look, who wants it more? Holly wants it more. Cardio looked good, right? She looked tired. She looked winded in the second and the third. She looked flustered. Her face was red. In, in some of those latter rounds, she was just like pulling her punches because she was getting hit. She'd blitz in with a three-punch combination. They'd all miss. She'd get countered. Not going good. The fourth round, not so. Doing everything right. Using the cage when she needed. I was striking her at distance when she needed. Landing some excellent shots. Um, I thought Holly Holm won the fight. I thought Holly Holm won the fight 3-2. All the rounds were close. Looking back on the stats on it, the first round, apparently Vieira kicked her ass by the numbers, but you watch the round. Like, Holmes got her pinned up against the cage. She does excellent work. Does a good job. Was it 3 nothing Vieira going into the fourth and fifth? Because the fourth and fifth were Hollies. Definitely the fifth. I don't think anybody's disagreeing. The only thing you can't disagree with is uh, two for Vieira, five for Holm, right? One, three, and four, that's what's up for debate. Did Ketlin win two of those? Well, I guess the judges believe so. And uh, you know what? I, people say I got the bounce in the park fight. I didn't get the bounce here. Like this is, uh, it's the ebbs and flow of things, right? That's why I knew, you know, probably hit the parachute here and take a hedge because shit's been really unpredictable lately. And I got thinking to myself, did I go wrong somewhere? Like where have I gone wrong? Where did I go from crushing every other week, you know, and putting some serious two, three week heaters together, back to back PRPs, hit one for 14 fights, multiple Bellator PRPs, including one that we did hit this year, capped off by an underdog and Adam Borux, like plus 165. Like, where did the good times go south? I don't really know. But but what I'm kind of thinking to myself is they put so many cards on, there's so many mid-level guys, that there's so many variables. Like, it's one thing to talk about world-class guys because you're kind of expecting something out of them. Yes, a Rose Namajunas could go out there and still shit in the apple pie as a world-class operator, but for the most part, you've got a better idea of what's going to happen. In these fights, 
there's just something wrong with pretty much everybody, right? Holmes, 40 years old, hasn't fought in a while. Ponzinibbio has been on a serious decline since he had that almost career-ending injury. He's in his late 30s. He hasn't looked good since he's come back. Michelle Pereira could get himself disqualified or do a backflip off the cage and blow his knee out or fight a dumb game plan and gas out. Like, these are not trustworthy guys. Dusko fights with his head weighed up in the air. Chidi, Chidi's looking good now, but he had a reputation as an apple pie shader. Pollyanna Vienna is an apple pie shader. Eric Anders is the fucking king of the apple pie shaders, and he's fighting a guy in Jung Young Park that just fought the stupidest game plan of all times against Rodriguez and got himself KO'd. Like, none. Joseph Holmes, you're going to put faith in this guy? Alan Amadovsky, bum. Bum that's been on for three years. Jailton, Jailton looked the real deal. But he's a minus 650, and he's moving up to heavyweight on relatively short notice. Euros is from Alaska FC. He's no good. Omar Morales has never pulled the trigger. Jonathan Martinez gets clipped. Chase Hooper, what the hell? It's Chase Hooper. Sam Hughes, Sam Hughes against Elise Reed. Oh my God. So you need to pick on like one side or the other of like which one of these untrustworthy people that generally loses or generally is not there. None of these people are in the top 20, right? Uh, as you go higher up the, the card, Chidi's definitely worked his way in. Pereira, Ketlin and Holm, obviously. Santiago's just slipping a little bit, but it's still world-class. But the rest of the card, it's a junk card. A lot of junk fighters. I, I, that was so disrespectful. Uh, that was a junk card. With good fighters, either developmental stages or just like not quite there yet, green, inexperienced, need to get, they're all having their second, third, fourth fight in the octagon. They're just, uh, it's that's it's hard to get like a very confident read and then have that person go out and execute that exact game plan just because they're not quite there yet. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's really no solution. All you do is just soldier on. Like, we love the game. We love the sport. Make sure you do the tape research. Maybe I got to shore that up a little bit. I don't know. Uh, set up the hedge opportunities because I want to be safer about this than just hit the big one. And then I know the big one is coming because, again, any hot streak comes to an end and any cold streak comes to an end. It doesn't happen forever. We get next week off from any UFC offering. So, and I don't think there's any Bellator. There's no PFL. There's nothing like that next week. So, kind of a week off, you know, reset the gears. And then, and then get back at it, you know? I, uh, I'm i not one to get super discouraged, right? I've had a lot of luck doing this. Um, and again, you know, the way my style is, not for everybody, it's low risk, high reward, right? If you're betting a unit or two on every card, you're losing a unit two or two on every card, frustrating, no doubt about it. But the hope would be that we are going to hit one of these ones for 10 units and it's going to make up for the five bad weeks that you did have. And of course, I'm not trying to have five bad weeks in a row, like, that to me has been the most frustrating part is you can handle bad week, bad week, bad week, decent, but to just have a run of junior DeSantis dislocating his shoulder in the Eagle FC main event, I don't know, just a whole, uh, a, a whole bunch of whack ass nonsense. So, uh, a anyways, anyways, no, nobody to blame. We know what we're getting self into. It's the gambling game. It was a fun card, I suppose, from a entertainment uh, standpoint, couple bad stinkers in the mix, but that's what happens when you're in a small cage and people think they can just lean on it the whole time. What can you do? Um, yeah, like I said, next week we are off, but uh, hopefully we can get back to bigger and better things. I know I'm probably sounding like a broken record on that, but anyways, optimistic that we will get back to our winning ways eventually. Till then, hopefully you came out unscathed, maybe made a little bit of a profit, and if you did lose, again, frustrating, but Dems to breaks in this game sometimes. We'll catch you guys next time. Best of luck.
Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast. 